0: Hello, welcome to the Friday, June 14th, 2019 edition of the Sands and Storm Service Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich, and today I'm recording from Neptune, New Jersey. About a week ago, we had this critical remote code execution vulnerability in the XM mail server that was being patched. Well, it looks like the bad guys wasted no time, and there are now a couple of different botnets that are exploiting this vulnerability. One of these bots is described by Cyber Reason in a blog post and what they're seeing is XM servers that haven't been patched being exploited and backdoored. The attacker in this case will modify the authorized keys file for ZH in order to be able to log in to that server. Later, it also installs crypto miners on vulnerable servers. So before you're leaving for the weekend, it may be a good idea to run a quick scan on your network, making sure you don't have any XM servers running. And if you do, that these servers are patched. If they're not patched at this point, you definitely should assume that the server has been compromised. And YubiKey is recalling several of its FIPS certified YubiKeys. The problem apparently here is that after you power up one of these affected YubiKeys, the initial cryptographic keys being used for the first few operations, are using up to 80 predictable bits, which may not be a big issue for, for example, an RSA key, which has a total of 2048 bits, uh, but for some of the elliptic curve keys, of course, that are shorter, this may be more of a problem. So, in order to check if your particular YubiKey is affected, uh, you should see the four letters F I P S, so FIPS, printed on the YubiKey if uh, your YubiKey is affected. Also, only YubiKeys shipped before April 30th are affected. These YubiKeys are running firmware prior to 445, which would be either 442 or 444. So, if you're using YubiKeys, take a look. At the Ubico advisory regarding uh, this issue, they also have pictures of affected YubiKeys in order to make it easier to identify if your particular key is affected. And yes, uh, we have yet another critical medical device vulnerability. This time it is the Beckton Dickinson Olores Gateway Workstation. Apparently this workstation does allow a remote firmware update without any kind of authentication. Updating firmware is as easy as creating a respective Windows cabinet file and then uploading it to the affected workstation via SMB. Apparently, these workstations are running Windows CE and will automatically unpack the archive and then install the malicious firmware. In addition, a less severe attack can be used in order to just read information from the device, so this could potentially leak patient data. The manufacturer has released a firmware update uh, patching both vulnerabilities. The CVSS rating for the first vulnerability is of course a full 10, even though the manufacturer assumes that it's probably difficult to exploit because you have to go through a certain set of steps, like creating the CAP file and then uploading it via SMB. And the Telegram messaging service is currently experiencing a massive attack that, according to Telegram's founder, may be linked to some of the protests in Hong Kong, which currently do, according to some press reports, use Telegram in order to organize themselves. Telegram is seeing 200 to 400 gigabits per second, and apparently many of these packets are actually coming from Chinese IP addresses. As a result of these attacks, uh, Telegram was not available in some parts of the world. And the outage spread beyond Asia to US and other countries. And if you're looking for something to do over the weekend, Jim Glossing is continuing his series of tips and tricks for IDA users that are switching to Hydra. In this installment, he's talking about function call graphs. So take a look at this. And again, if you aren't familiar with it, Hydra is the reverse analysis tool that was released by the NSA during this year's RSA conference. Well, after a break, we have again an SDI student for the Friday podcast. Today, I have with me Joel Chapman, who wrote a research paper about Wi-Fi calling and some of the security implications. Uh, Joel, could you introduce yourself, please?
1: Sure. My name is Joel. I've been uh, an STI student for several months now, a little over a year now. I've learned quite a bit in some of the different science classes and Learned a lot uh, conducting this research.
0: Your paper was about these voice over Wi Fi, so not necessarily just sort of voice over IP, but uh, you know, when sort of mobile carriers offer this Wi Fi calling, I think it's sometimes called. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how this works and what sort of the major takeaways there were from your paper?
1: Sure, so the the way it works is basically like any other VoIP based system, it's employing the, the IP protocol to transmit basic voice traffic from point A to point B as opposed to using the, the more traditional circuit-based systems that uh, we all know and, and love. What the mobile carriers have done is they've uh, taken this a little bit of a step further. Uh, traditionally, of course, a cell phone would connect to the tower via a uh, radio link, and then it would transmit the the call via that radio link. What the telephony services are allowing is for you to connect to a local Wi-Fi hotspot, be it your home or the, you know, the local coffee shop and then use that Wi-Fi as the primary transmission pathway for for moving that voice uh, traffic. So on the on the one hand, that offers a lot of benefits. If you're a person who travels a lot, I know I am, uh, you may be in an area that you don't have you know, traditional cell coverage or you, you don't have good cell coverage. One of the things I found a lot in, in urban environments, you may not have good uh, access to a tower and not have that five bars. Uh, but this way, you can connect to any local Wi-Fi uh, access point and get a uh, very good call clarity, good uh, signal, as it were. But when I was looking into this, this offered an, a couple of concerns for me. Just inherently, when you're connecting to your home Wi-Fi, you hope that it's secure. Uh, but when you start connecting to you know, some of the more ubiquitous Wi-Fis that uh, you'll find in, for the traveler or for, in the urban environment, you may or may not know who else is on that Wi-Fi or, or what kind of security is in place. So my big question was to find out. You know how susceptible is this this voice traffic uh, to someone trying to listen in or eavesdrop on your conversation or try and um, steal your information while you're you're connected to that access point. And the first thing I found, uh, the good news up front, was that uh, they're actually pretty secure. So I looked at a couple of different uh, solutions that exist. First, the the, the main thread of my research was looking to the actual organic voice over wifi capabilities that are baked into a lot of the, the cell phones, the mobile devices that are offered on the market. And then I also uh, took a look at some of the competing applications that are available from third parties that you can download onto a mobile device, which offer a similar capability. And like I said, they're, they're pretty secure. There's uh, inherent encryption on the connection. Someone who is just uh, nonchalantly attempting to eavesdrop someone who's um sitting next to you at the, at the coffee shop who's maybe seeing your traffic traverse the network is not necessarily going to be able to see what you're doing, listen in on your conversation, know what you're telling the other person or what you're hearing back. Um, so that was the, the good news. The, the less good news, I don't want to say necessarily bad news, was that there was a, a lot of opportunity for improvement in, in what I found was being offered. One of the biggest things was just the uh, ability of the user to control what's going on with their data. So regardless of whether or not I'm connecting to the uh, local Wi-Fi, or if I'm, uh, what the signal strength is, what I found was that the the mobile device has an inherent bias towards using the cell tower, the traditional radio transmission uh, pathway there. So you really have to work to try and shut off that capability, that cell tower connection, before this voice over Wi-Fi would, would kick on.
0: Do you think that's mostly for call quality reasons or security reasons that they prefer the traditional uh, connectivity?
1: I would expect there's probably a few reasons for that. I think the the first or the biggest would be for call quality because they don't have a lot of control over that Wi-Fi node. It is a lot easier to control your product from a uh, services you're di- directly leasing or, or owning. So... From that perspective, it makes a lot of sense, I think, for the uh, t- service provider to offer an inherent bias in their product towards their own known good capabilities. My concern with that was is that it does make it a lot harder for the for the user to have sort of input into how that, that data is uh, being employed. So if I want to take the example of the traveler, if I try and load up my phone in another country where I don't have my normally billed traffic, it would be billed as roaming or as uh, international calling. There are several steps I have to take, and on the devices I tested, they were fairly simple. I was able to put the phone into uh, airplane mode and then reactivate the Wi-Fi and it worked. But it's not uh, an intuitive process, you have to sit down and think about it to be able to ensure that your, your telephony service is reversing that Wi-Fi and not still reaching back to a tower. So making a system that's more intuitive for the user, especially for someone who's not maybe well-versed in how their, their system works, so that they can understand what that traffic flow is and understand what their cell phone is doing when they turn it on and try and place a call. Everybody appreciates the the high availability asset, uh, but I think that having more of a, an insight into what that asset is doing, especially with the growing concerns over privacy and over security uh, would be beneficial for the user and then inherently also beneficial for the service provider.
0: You also compared some, like you call them third-party service. I think it was like, you know, Facebook calling and such. Uh, did they pretty much do the same thing as Wi-Fi calling or did they use a little bit different protocols there as far as you could tell?
1: So they did have uh, some slightly different protocols that were in use. The biggest differences that I identified was just in how the the initial call setup is being handled, whereas the mobile devices seem to have a lot of the the security for that call connection built in. The third-party apps had to establish connectivity back to their server, be it Google or Facebook, in order to create the the necessary encryption pathway for the uh, phone call to complete. They were using uh, TLS, so no significant issues there, but it did create some extra layers of potential vulnerability to larger scope exploits, uh, something attacking a server or actually attacking the the endpoint device itself, outside of the scope of my research, but something I would like to dig into later. And then it also created a little bit, it made it easier, I guess, for the someone who is eavesdropping to identify what that traffic is. So there were certain redundancies within the the specific packets that you could identify traversing the network where if this is something you're familiar with you could begin to pick out the patterns and say these encrypted packets are related to the phone call and then you could start to pick out the actual uh, SIP initiation process as the the call setup occurred.
0: Did you at all try to do some TLS man in the middle uh, with any of these connections?
1: I did a little bit again one of the kind of thresholds that was preventing me pursuing that path too far was I was trying to very explicitly restrict myself to what the the eavesdropping attacker may be able to do. I did identify during the course of the research uh, especially through uh, creating you know probably through the creation of a rogue uh, access point and trying to force some sort of download onto the mobile device we could vi- probably very easily have created uh, some serious potential vulnerabilities or exploited some some of these potential vulnerabilities, I should say, and ended up compromising the uh, telephony traffic that was being passed
0: from that device. So these are more the overall uh, problems of connecting to an untrusted Wi-Fi access point uh, while traveling. Correct. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I guess then it comes down to how do they get it from that um, access point, if you want to call it that, uh, back into the internet, you know, how they encrypt that but it's probably easier done just on the device itself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I would expect. There is an inherent trust that the, the service provider is providing enough security on their their bulk transmission lines. Um, I hope that what they have there is good. <laughs> it's outside yeah. of the, the my visibility and I, I use a, a cell phone every day, so here's hoping.
0: Yeah. So uh, what are you up to next? Uh, like you're still pretty early, I guess, in the SDI process.
1: I am. So I'm actually uh, finishing up my certificate here pretty soon. And I I dipped my toe in the water, but I really enjoyed what I was doing. I really learned a great deal. So I'll be um, diving into the full uh, master's program here fairly soon and uh, probably getting to do some more research. So I'm actually really looking forward to that.
0: Excellent. So thanks for joining me here. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. And this is it for today, talk to you again on Monday. Bye.